Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision once again to tune in and invest in yourself today. And the canine population of the world is rejoicing as we dive into another episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We are a podcast that takes you to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that can change your trajectory or at least bring you a little bit closer to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. We don't have a $25,000 Hollywood studio. In fact, I'm sitting out here on my balcony here in beautiful Las Vegas, known to some on some days as the hottest city in America. Uh, It's a nice, beautiful 98-degree day, which in Las Vegas is not even hot because we don't really have much humidity, enjoying a cigar, enjoying the view, and occasionally you may hear some things in the background. The leaf blower guys are out there clearing our non-existent leaves, and uh, and Harry Reid Airport is about three miles behind me, so occasionally may you hear a helicopter or the whoosh of a 747, but these are the things you hear in the background when you are having those transformational conversations. They do not happen in sterile soundproof rooms. So imagine yourself being the third person sitting in on a private mastermind conversation, capturing those aha moments. Well, in this case, the fourth person, because we have two people here today. Their names are Mark Petruzzi and Paul Melchiori. They were on my other podcast several weeks ago, And I invited them back because I realized that we had a lot more to discuss than we could cover in just 15 minutes. Their topic is about selling the cloud, and that's the title of their book. So we're going to take a deep dive into what it takes to be successful in selling cloud software today. And we're going to go beyond just cloud software. We're going to go into some areas of sales in general. We're going to cover a couple uh, hot button topics, a couple live wires. This is really one you want to be leaned into and tuned into. And you want to subscribe to our show so that you can go back and get the replay and listen to this a few times as just from the sample we got from Mark and Paul a few weeks ago, I can tell you this one is going to be a feast. Mark and Paul, come on in. The weather's fine. Awesome. Thanks for having us, Adam. Absolutely. Hey, Adam, how are you? Oh, fa- fantastic. Couldn't be better if you paid me a million dollars. But try it once anyway, just to see what happens. I'm, I'm a big believer in scientific experiments and uh, testing hypotheses. So what we, so what we, we want to... Yeah. So what we like to do here is you both have very impressive biographies, which can be found on our website. In fact, uh, I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here in your presence. And this is my show. So rather than me read off the bios, which anybody can look up, I want you guys to just take a few moments and tell me a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Bearing in mind, we have a different set of listeners than we had for the last show. Paul, take us away. Well, Mark, you're older. I was going to have you go first, but uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, uh, This is Paul Melchior, and thank you, Adam. We're really appreciative to uh, be part of this event today. And, uh, you know, my um, career started way back here in the city of Philadelphia when a small company called SAP decided to migrate from Germany to the U.S. So I was fortunate enough to be one of the very first employees as that company expanded. Uh, internationally. And uh, as you can imagine, it was a rocket shot, rocket ship ride from the beginning. You know, in the late 80s, early 90s, SAP was probably one of the most uh, successful um, stories in software, especially for a European company coming to the U.S. And I think today it's the equivalent GDP of a a mid-sized country. So uh, it was an incredible run through those uh, 90s. And um, then I was able to leverage that to uh, go to a startup a company in California, did my first tour of duty there, a company called Ariba, 
uh, a uh-huh. pre-revenue B2B e-procurement company. And then um, was there pretty much uh, almost from beginning pre-revenue through to the sale, ironically, of uh, Arebit SAP. Did a small stint at a private equity uh, owned firm called iPipeline. And then more recently uh, joined Anaplan early on and, and took them public and uh, now currently doing private equity venture growth work for a company called Stripes. Okay. Awesome. Fantastic. I'll ju- yeah, I'll jump in as well, Adam. I'm, uh, I'm fortunate to have a, a very close friend and co-author who doesn't add really well then when he tries to figure out who's older, but we'll, we'll start from there. Um, so I joined um, Paul early in those days in, from an SAP perspective. Um, I was a, um, a director and the managing director at Deloitte. Um, was fortunate enough to start a couple of boutique consulting firms and then worked um, with Mark Benioff and a number of his individuals who went off to start Salesforce when they were um, still at Oracle. So um, certainly right place, right time a few times in my career. Um, moved into SaaS in the cloud, kind of the message from Mark when he left uh, was, you know, anybody he knew at a boutique consulting background kind of showed up on a list where they were like, the, the message was, you know, we're about to do something really, really big with Salesforce and with the cloud. And, you know, frankly, you're not very smart if you don't resign from Oracle, you know, like that day and start a salesforce.com boutique. And it took me about three years. So uh, I guess I'm not as smart as I uh, sometimes hope I am. Um, early into the cloud and a very balanced focus on the cloud software SaaS side and consulting side. And that's when I've got the real opportunities to work with Paul and some of the other most amazing CROs that that we have had in this tech space. Um, and that helped us to, to do a couple things. For me, it allows me to work with um, BCG and uh, Genpak and other companies as an expert advisor and board advisor um, that allows me to work with some of the most successful large SaaS companies uh, that are out there today and, and do sales transformation and sales consulting. And it also gives me the, um, the bandwidth too to work with a lot of smaller companies in an advisory and board position um, and do a lot of work with private equity, you know, similar to Paul does what Paul does with with Stripes. But really, what that's given me is I've gotten to, you know, work with, coordinate, collaborate, and watch. As I mentioned, you know, individuals like Paul do their things, and uh, it's a real it's a real treat. And uh, I've actually taken a few things I've learned to, along the way, and you know, moved into some senior sales leadership CRO roles myself. So really happy to, to be here with you, Adam. And uh, I love my uh, having my, my partner here, Paul, on, uh, even though he's, he's older than me. <laughs> I was going to say something about age before beauty, but um, then again, I, I can't tell which is which. I think we're all just fantastic guys. Um, now, now, Paul, I have a quick question. Now, uh, Paul, I have a quick um, or Actually, I think it was, um, I think it was, uh, Mark, uh, you, um, I mean, I, I, when I look at your bios, actually, I often can't tell which is which, cause you both mentioned Paul, <laughs> I think it was Paul. So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you worked for Ariba. Correct. That's Wait, within what time frame was that? So I was fortunate enough, as like I said, to join their pre-revenue. So when I left SAP late 97, early 98, um, actually packed up moved out of Philadelphia to go to California. So I was with Ariba pretty much from that time frame all the way up to the sale to SAP, which occurred in uh, 2012. Okay. Well, that's okay. The reason I bring that up is um, I started my MBA program in September of the year 2000 when I started Duquesne University. And uh, for a few weeks uh, during that first semester, I had a temp job at a company called Free Markets, which anybody who works at Ariba has probably heard of. And um, and some of our listeners know why, but I'm about to tell you. During the three weeks that I was a, a temp there, I came away with the impression that this was a 
chaotic company uh, basically um, pulling it pulling it off, uh, basically pulling it out of its ass. It was going to get acquired within two to three years. Um, I didn't know nothing for nothing as far as business logistics or development at that point. But even I could figure out this company was going to be acquired by a competitor. Now, fast forward about a semester or two to a class I had at Duquesne. It was uh, it was uh, our environment of business class. And uh, the and uh, each week the professor would have some luminary from the local business community come in and give a thirty minute presentation. Well, one week we had the HR director from Ariba, and the next week we had the manager of people development, whatever title he used, um, who worked with free markets. When I compared the two presentations, I said, "Ariba will buy free markets within three years. Watch." <laughs> you were a visionary, Adam. In fact, uh, it was a great acquisition. I think we acquired them in the height of the, I guess, depression of 2004 five, where we almost got yep. delisted for 400 million in, you know, equity. And I think we sold it to Accenture like three or four years later for like 68 million. So, right. needless to say, the mathematics didn't work out, and, and you predicted that very, very well. So, uh, <laughs> the good news is we were able to relocate a lot of. Uh, very expensive jobs in California to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it yeah. worked out good for me. It was a lot easier trip to go from Philly to, to Pittsburgh than the, to, to get back and forth to Cali. So. Well, yeah, obviously, obviously based on the story, I told you I lived in Pittsburgh at the time and <laughs> I used to, and uh, when I, when I first became an entrepreneur, my first three clients were all in the Philadelphia area. So I used to drive out there back and forth every 60 days. Plus my best friend from college uh, lives in the environs of Jackson, New Jersey. So I used to road trip out there about once a quarter and vice versa. Well, so if you come I'm, out here, you're more than welcome, Adam. We'll, we'll yeah. host you here in Philly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hey, hey, next time in the area, we'll uh we'll absolutely have to hang out. So uh you are the you guys are the authors of um the book Selling the Cloud, a playbook for success in cloud software and enterprise sales. So I'm gonna start with a very broad question and we're gonna narrow it. Uh what inspired you guys to write the book in the first place? Yeah, I'll take Mark an initial run it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark made me, well, I made Paul do it, but but it started over a lunch or a dinner where we were just talking about crazy things at the beginning of, uh, you know, the pandemic was kind of uh, about to kick in and uh, we kind of knew it at the time. Um, and then, you know, when it came down to it, we, we just looked at this as saying, okay, you know, maybe things will slow down a little bit. Um, for, for a while with this. By the way, for both Paul and me, it didn't slow down one bit, which makes mm -hmm. writing a book a little harder. But we were thinking maybe it would and said, if we're going to ever write a book and we're ever going to get back to younger versions of ourselves, this is the way to do it. But the idea was, was all about giving back um, and even giving back from a charitable perspective and all that. Um, we've been very fortunate oh, cool. to be able to to sell many, many more books than we ever thought we would. And that means better charity um, donations at the end of the year. And and uh, I can spend all my time just trying to support all the great things that Paul does from a charitable perspective. So yeah, it was to give back and we've gotten to give back in a, in a couple of ways, which we love. Certainly. So uh, this is about, SaaS sales, which stands for software as a service. Now, how do those types of sales differ from other type of B2B sales? You know, let me try that one, Mark. And that's a great question because I think when we started this approach, we had like books of notes and, you know, ideas. And it was all about what we had done, you know, in, in selling primarily to, you know, the enterprise and, and selling software. But when we started thinking about through it, if you go through each of the chapters, we started to realize, look, this isn't just about selling software or just about selling business to business software or SaaS software. A lot of these principles Adam, that we felt were really fundamental aspects of selling, selling complex products or services, regardless of industry, regardless of, you know, uh, whether it was software, hardware or whatever. So I, I think it really started that way. And of course, our title and because our backgrounds are all around SaaS software and selling the cloud. But I really think, and we've gotten the feedback that, you know, if you go through each one of these chapters, fundamentally, each of these concepts 
apply to, to selling anything that's complex, that deals with relationships, that deals with complexity, dealing with complex organizations, whether it's hardware, software, services, really anything. But I think it had a slant on selling software in a B2B environment or cloud-based SaaS software. But I really think it, it's more you know, broad than that and has a much more broader appeal. Okay. Yeah, I was just, and the re, and part of the reason I wanted to speak with you guys in the first place is that, you know, we're seeing in today's marketplace the explosion of artificial intelligence and how this is being translated into the development of products and services that could be viewed as SaaS. In fact, one of my clients, I can't say anything right now because of NDAs, is working on two separate artificial intelligence coaching applications that are geared to two specific niches that they work in. And we have uh, one of our podcast reach clients who has actually developed a life coaching or self-help coaching application based on artificial intelligence. And that in a way falls under the SaaS category, I believe as well. So uh, I believe this is actually gonna become more relevant, not less as we go along. Yeah, Adam, and I think you're right on the money with that. And we tried to stay ahead of the curve there, too. And we have a book coming out, another book coming out um, that is all focused on the, the, um, the data side, the, the sales tech, and the, even you know, the AI side for how, as a, as a good sales leader, you know, how you can really leverage the, the, the capabilities that are out there from a technology standpoint. And that title is going to be Diagnosis and Data-Driven Selling. And it's, it's taking all these concepts to another le level. Um, so we're, we're real excited about that as well. But to comment on, the, on AI and technology, you know, there is, uh, you're, you're exactly right that this, you know, even though we focused it on SaaS, it's, it's, it expands really quickly to what, Paul and I believe every bit of selling should be. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you look at what happened in our software space, software was typically sold at an SAP, at an Oracle for, you know, an initial check of 2 million, 5 million, 15 million, 20 million. And what would happen then, that check would be written and then the consulting teams of those organizations would come in and try to piece this all together and support and all the other components. And frankly, the sales team was, was forced to move on. They had to go find the next 10 or 15 deals like this. So they disappeared. And that's one thing mm -hmm. that Mark Benioff and individuals like Scott Sher, who's the, the founder of Ultimate Software, now UKG, that's what they figured out, that, that, that that's not a good long model. And you're, you're going to make a lot of clients really unhappy with that kind of an approach. And they looked at this being more subscription-based, more commitment-based on both the vendor and client side. And guess what? What has happened with that, instead of these, these companies rotating out, even though it, was, it would take immense fixed cost to to rip out a system and implement it again, they'd still within seven, 10 years, they'd, they'd rip it out and they'd take it on the chin and they'd be so happy to get rid of whatever incumbent vendor they have. Now there are companies, you know, like Salesforce that have had the same clients for now, 18, 20, 21 years. And all they have to do is is have a different model of selling and a different level of commitment to their clients. And Paul and I both believe this has been a game changer. It's why these companies are so highly valued. And to your point, it's why AI, it's, it's the, the framework where AI is going to be driven as well, because it's the same thing, whether it's, you know, you're down the road signing up for a, um, you know, a business ver version of ChatGPT or whatever else comes next, you're going to, you know, you're going to um, keep writing those subscription checks if you're getting the kind of power and response that these AI tools are able to give. So I think you're right. It's just going to get bigger and better. 
Yeah, what I'm what I was thinking of as you were saying that, and you know, you companies bring in these sophisticated uh, SaaS systems or technologies that they use to run a significant portion of their business. Uh, but there's something else that changes in the company typically every five to seven years, which is the makeup of the C-suite. And what we often see happen, at least from my outside looking in experience, and you tell me what you think of this, is part of the reason you will have these things happen where they'll rip out an entire system and have a competitor or a different company put in a whole new system is that there's a new sheriff in town and they want to show that they're making a difference and implementing change. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell Paul, you, Adam, you wanna, is Paul. I, yeah, I think that's one of the so, biggest so, so, reasons. Yeah, that, so, so if I yeah. made my follow-up question, I forgot to mention yeah. my follow-up question. My apologies okay. is, is how do you, you know, what do you put in place to resist that impulse? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's interesting because as new management comes in any situation, that typically requires change. And the reason new management's coming in is because the old management probably wasn't getting it done. So there's going to be change, change management, change in technology, different systems. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happened in the old SAP days, you couldn't rip and replace. It was like taking the organs of a body out. They, you just right. don't do it. It's as the technology embedded into fortune companies that I sold almost 30 years ago. So, and it's not coming out, which is probably why we have the supply chain problems we have. But regardless, the, the SaaS environment allows companies to rip and replace, if you will, or augment technologies without having kind of surgery, if you will. So you can put these SaaS technologies in relatively quickly, you know, not, not in, you know, years, but in weeks or months. And therefore, as these new management um, transitions occur, the new change in direction or strategy occur, then you have an ability to put these technologies in quickly, which is why, as Mark said, it's very important to have that level of customer success and serviceability because you're only paying, say, a year, two years, maybe a three-year contract, and then it has to renew, just like a subscription of any kind. And right. therefore, it's very important. But I, I do agree when you have these changes in management, changes in strategy or whatever, this new element of software, and I think it's only going to get more complex when you think about AI, which has kind of been around, if you will, for a while. I mean, we've been running algorithms and and techniques in these companies to do predictive analytics and forecasting and other aspects of any kind of predictive modeling. It's now just become almost more mainstream when you hear about, you know, consumer-based products like ChatGPT and others, but it's been around forever. I mean, think about it. every time you go on Amazon or you go on any of these products. I mean, Amazon knows that your wife's pregnant before, you know, you or she does, right? right. So there, this technology has been around and it's been working forever and, and it knows what you know ads to serve you up based on your prior you know uh, browsing history so this this technology is now just leapfrogging and i think it will be a dramatic shift and change uh, in in a lot of companies and some companies will you know embrace it and take advantage of it and others will be left behind without question Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of algorithms, I mean, I'm just, uh, I have a few tabs open on my browser as we do this <laughs> big surprise. Right. And so right now I'm kind of, I'm thumbing through my Facebook, uh, while we're having this conversation, looking at some of the entries, um, in my everything podcasting group, cause we're having our weekly roundup. And I just happened to, you know, meander onto the news feed while I was listening, hanging on every word you said. And, uh, I bet you before the end of our time here, I'm going to be getting ads for midwives and doulas. <laughs> and, awesome. I, and the fact i just said out loud pretty much locked it in at this point yeah, so <laughs> yeah. alexa and siri are always listening <laughs> yeah i don't i don't i don't have i don't have um uh those types of uh devices where i just ask it to do something for me but uh, i have no doubt in my mind that pretty much every appliance except my refrigerator which is uh pre which is an old school refrigerator uh are probably listening to every word i say <laughs> hey adam one thing we just touched on that uh, i'd like to um, bring out a little bit further as well you know it's it's funny to the points that that Paul was making that that and you made that five to seven year rotation of a new executive team. What's really cool though about this SaaS space, 
you know, as Paul mentioned, when a new executive team came in and five or seven or 10 years later, they they go and they wanted to rip out that supply chain system. And it would be so painful and so costly. But the, the client vendor relationship would typically so bad that although the CFO never wanted to see that money spent, they couldn't stop it. You know, yeah. somebody came in as a CEO, but nowadays what's, what I see in a lot of my clients is the process starts the same way. A new sheriff comes in and they're like, I don't like this system. I wanted that system. And, but then the CFO gets involved and finds out everybody kind of likes this system. It's not, not so bad. There's work to do. There's add-ons like Paul said, but it's not what it used to be. And, and that's what stops the actual plug being pulled and that that i think is a really really cool thing and you know paul and i you know we 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 still to this day have passion for that we we love that you know we can do this stuff for our clients and you know it's never easy and you know there's always challenges with any kind of software but man oh man the difference of what our clients think about with us and and how happy they are with these software systems today versus 15 or 20 years ago is night and day. Well, uh, here's a micro thing I, I thought of. Now, uh, I've uh, been a guy who's owned multiple computers for most of my adult life, and I'm used to the idea of I start a new computer and then I have to install all my critical softwares on it so that I can basically have redundancy to do all the functions of my business, yada, 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 you know the rest. So uh, I love uh, I love the PC environments. I've, I've mostly had Samsungs, and lately I've uh, developed a real attachment for the Lenovo Yogas. Uh, my smartphones have always been either Samsungs or Google Pixel, this, that, or the other. And uh, I, sw- I swear to God, it's almost cult-like. Uh, I remember one time on my 2013 Samsung, when the thing was six years old, the power cord got frayed just from daily use. And I mentioned that I had I mentioned on social media that I had had to go to an aftermarket place and pay thirty two dollars to get the cord because uh, Samsung no longer manufactured it. And boy, how many people tried to tell me that the solution to that problem was to get a Mac? Uh huh. Well, he, well, and and here's one of the arguments that folks used to be able to make about that as well. With my with my MacBook, if uh, one machine dies, I just uh, get another one and I open it up. I turn the power on. I connect it to the internet. I push one button and it replicates my entire desktop from the other one. And here in 2023, I can say, yeah, cool. My when I when my one Lenovo Yogo's keyboard stopped working and I had to take it in for repairs under warranty, but I couldn't wait 10 days to get it back. I had to buy another Lenovo Yogo that day. I brought it home and I did the same thing. So at the micro level, we're seeing a lot more of this as well. I remember back in the day where every three years you had to buy a new Microsoft Office because the previous one became defunct. And now you just pay $99 a year and uh, and you always have the most current version. You don't even realize it's being updated. And that's with a lot of softwares. I mean, I can, I can start a new computer and be fully up to speed in 15 minutes. So, and I think we're seeing that in a lot of things and i think that's an opportunity if and this this is actually a question for you this is an opportunity once you get that client and you get your your SaaS, your cloud software into their systems that one of the things that protects your retention of that customer is the ability to quickly add new features and have them installed via the cloud yeah hey, yeah, hey this it, is paul i i i'll uh tell you that the innovation cycles with this type of delivery vehicle is really what is the difference. And so when you have kind of the legacy technologies, and there's so many of them out there, and they're still out there, ironically, but you know they are being replaced and slowly being replaced. And once they are replaced, the new technologies from the SaaS providers that come in, you know, really do allow that uh, ongoing innovation. So release cycles used to be once a year. And when you went through a release of an SAP or an Oracle, it was a very painful product uh, process. And, you know, the product wasn't that much better and you went through a lot of pain to get <clears throat> to the next release. Now, you know, you don't even know that the next release has come up. It just appears. That's really the difference. 
Yeah. And yeah, and I, and I think that that's fantastic. So let's say that uh, you're you you were you're a salesperson for a company, and it's you're getting a lot of demand for this one feature. Well, they can, as I understand it, they can add it to their software, and then just and then just push it out through the next update, sort of like the way that Tesla can update the software in their cars. Uh, they just uh, they just push the update now, sometimes, and depending on what it is, like you know, again coming back to the. Um, to the uh, PC computers, I remember back in the day where if you had to system restore your machine and the machine was like three years old, first you system restored it, then you had to wait almost another day for all of the patches and updates to catch up. Uh, whereas in today's environment, that still happens, but it takes like 10 minutes. Exactly. Yeah, so there have been a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of developments there. Now, here's an intriguing question. And Given the demographics of my listeners, this is something that I know that a number of our listeners are curious about. Uh, you've mentioned, and we discussed this briefly in the green room, that uh, that women in particular can excel in this area of sales. And why do you say that? Yeah, I'll they're jump better. on that one first. <laughs> yeah. They're better than they're, us. They're better. Than us. They're better. And, and <laughs> but. But there's a few there's a few things on on another podcast just a couple of days ago we went very deep into this and let me tell you there is a um, there's a few really simple reasons um, and the, the simplest is they're better so that's that's one thing but let's go a little deeper um, their empathy is, is different it's different and it's better than than I than I think and you know we think. Um, typically, you know, a typical guy has. Um, so they are, whether it's a long-term relationship or just a meeting, they can take themselves easier into, you know, looking at it from the other individual's perspective, the client or prospect's perspective. So that's one thing. Then it's the authenticity. You know, we believe that that women are better at being their authentic self on average than men. Now there's there's examples that that go off of that chart on each side, but that's that's another another thing. And then the third thing I always kind of tie this to kind of ties back to the better point. You know, uh, women I I believe women are smarter as a whole. And okay. you can you could prove it out from a data perspective by just looking at the percentage of female versus male um, students in every college, you know, throughout the, uh, throughout America. And even some of the, the best ones have significant um, changes, differences on that. Now there's other reasons why that happened and everything else, but I think that, that, you know, that pure brain power combined with the empathy and the authenticity are, are three of the, the, the major issues. Paul, anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah, I'd say if you go into chapter five, I believe it's empathy and, and selling the cloud that we talked all about that. And it really drove home, you know, and we had great examples in my most recent, you know, role at Anaplan, you know, when I got there, some of the top reps, they were all female. In fact, I had this poor guy, Tom, call me up at the end of the year and he thought he had, you know, won the, the Porsche, which I used to give out every year to the top rep. And I said, yeah, Tom, I said, you're the top rep. And he says, really, am I getting the Porsche? I said, oh, no, you're sixth overall. You're the top male rep. The first five are females. And it was sad, but true. I mean, I felt bad for the poor guy, but uh, that's just the way it worked. And I think through our careers, we started to see it. Now, the numbers haven't really equated, you know, because there's still in, in our profession in technology and selling, I think in general, in technology, there's still very many more, you know, males versus females. But you know, the numbers are definitely trending in the right direction. And I think, as Mark says, because of the reasons, you know, they should really be involved more in tech and, and be involved more in tech selling because, you know, they definitely have a much better chance of success. And I think you'll see those numbers over the next decade really almost go in the opposite direction, in my opinion. Yeah, see, I, I knew when I asked the question that this would come across a little edgy. In fact, you may recall at the beginning of the introduction, I said that we were going to touch a couple live wires. And uh, and yeah. this is this is what kind of what I had in mind. And, uh, you know, the fact is, is, you know, there are both uh, 
strengths and weaknesses, um, opportunities and challenges, whether you're male or whether you're female, and you do bring different things to the table. Um, like, uh, there, like I, I say, there are certain things that, um, there's, uh, that women are innately superior to me. There's things that they can't, that I couldn't possibly dream of doing. And then I'm going beyond giving birth. There are other, um, physical, mental, and other <laughs> capabilities as well. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, and, and anybody who's married or in a relationship knows that, um, winning arguments is typically something you want the woman to do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh oh that that okay we'll that, that, that. <laughs> that that okay that 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 was that was absolutely evil and rotten of me but hey it's it's my platform so i don't care um but uh but at the same at the same time um you know the male of the species brings certain things to uh to us as well and i don't really view it so much as competition or um looking at uh, pluses and minuses but i look at it more as what can we gain through synergy? Well, Adam, yeah, I mean that's all diversity, right? That's yeah. we we need all that in every single way. And it's yeah. funny, I don't know if you noticed that when you were really went deep on this whole um, male female thing, I actually muted myself to make sure I didn't get into the, your discussion. But because um, you you were you, <laughs> this whole winning argument thing, you're going to get in trouble for that one. But. Um, <laughs> But point being, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, dear, you're right, dear. I'm sorry, dear. I know, I know, I'm not currently married, but I have actually done well enough that I've reached the that I've reached the M discussion twice in my life. There you uh, go. There you go. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and again, I, I'm not. I won't take this into a whole diversity thing about, um, you know, it just it's not what this context is. But from our perspective, and in this book. I mean, the diversity is is huge. It's everything. And it's the diversity of thought, background, every single thing you can you can do as a sales team. And we even have, again, a chapter that we really analyze kind of, a, you know, the standardized different types of sales reps. There there are five or six different categories. Ooh, ooh, again, tell us about this. Thinks, yes. Tell us yeah. a bit about this. This is, this is my next question. Awesome. So yeah, I mean, it's when it comes down to that, there are the, the the different there are different types. There are the ones that are are very you know calculated in everything they do and very quantitative and very data focused. And you know, you have those individuals, and then you have the ones that are just really you know more relationship and they don't want to get into process in a deep deep way. And you know what? What we you know, we've spent a lot of our careers kind of figuring out well, what do we need more of and what's better and what 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 wins more. And we've looked at all that. And a lot of what I've seen in, in the data that I've worked with is as much as there are certainly trends, there is no there is no um, no unequivocal trends. So you cannot say, I want all my people to look this way, or I want all my people to have this kind of a mindset, um, or even selling style. And you, you should, you know, make sure, uh, and this is the simplest way that I do it, that you try to add as much diversity in every single way you can. And if you take it in that simple way, you will have the best sales team you can build. Uh, that's how it's worked for me, at least. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's a team sport, you know, and, and no team has all the same players. And, yeah. you know, it, diversity is maybe the right or wrong word because people use it in a lot of different ways. And, and we don't mean it in the traditional political like way. It's it's right. different types of people bring different types of skill sets. Teams mesh together because they have different personalities. I mean, we talk in the book about the types of salespeople and, you know, there's different types of, you know, pro profiles, if you will. And if you look at any great sales team, um, you know, first of all, if you're a giant company like a Salesforce or an SAP or Oracle, you can't have all of the same type. Right. But, right. you know, together they, they mix and match those diverse profiles, diverse personalities. And then, you know, it's a team sport as it is. It's not just a sales rep. It's the pre-sales, it's the engineer, it's the customer support rep, you know, it's it's the product management folks. It's all the people working together. And typically, if you have diversity of thought, if you will, and, and that goes all the way up to the boardroom, right? When you look at boards being constructed, you know, it's the diversity of thought 
not necessarily a diversity that people think about that really makes those uh, management teams or boards really execute well. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a quote that I like to paraphrase, and I say paraphrase because I might be off by one point, but you'll get the gist of it. It was uh, from General George S. Patton, uh, and he's uh, and what what's attributed to him is him saying that if everybody in the room is thinking the same way, somebody isn't thinking. <laughs> You're right. That's a good one. Now, there, yeah, now, the, yeah. Now, there's something interesting about his management and leadership style when it came to uh, the various commanders and officers who reported to him he was a a stickler for certain things the way you language certain things in conversations um he demanded absolute conformity when it came to perfection in uniforms for example however however he did not actually micromanage his battles and he expected his field commanders to be able to think and act independently without having to call him for instructions every single time the bullets started flying. Now, to deconstruct this very briefly, what he was creating was a culture where this is how we look, this is how we act, this is how we think. And in creating this, I'm giving you the framework for what we view as the best practices. And with this, I'm now counting on you to be able to apply it to real-time situations innovatively and with agility as they come up. And I've always thought that that's, to a degree, a pretty good way of doing things in the main. Uh, I mean, demanding absolute conformity may or may not work depending on the culture of the workplace and the culture of the industry. But being able to articulate that type of vision, mission, and goals and getting people to embrace it actually in a way empowers them because they will in real-time situations be able to make decisions and take actions that they can feel confident will have the backing of superiors who they'll be counting on for sponsorship on this even when they didn't have a time have an opportunity to consult to get the sponsorship yeah we're moving too fast you're right it's you have to have that kind of a framework and you know the military is always a good example because you know you you can always relate it to business in some ways other than uh people don't you know get into as much trouble and i've never seen anybody in software die on the job if you will per se but um you know the pressure is the same right i mean you're in a large transaction you're you know chasing a you know a big client you, you don't have room for error and you have to make sure you're empowering as I said, it's a team sport. So putting that framework together, having that leadership style to empower the people on the team to make the right decisions, uh, it's almost you know uh, the only way it can happen in today's fast-paced world. Yeah, and here's another yeah. thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. All I was just going to add to that is just um, it's amazing how often you you don't see that happen. And what I mean yeah. by that is you you have CROs, people who have competed against Paul, and Paul has run circles around them for years. Um, that you know, just they look to drive as much conformity as they could, and they thought they had this right recipe and they wanted everyone just to use it. And even to the extent, I mean, there's so many of these, I mean, we can, we can write a book on this. Um, there's so many examples of sales leaders that only wanted their sales team to take a deal, a certain level, and then they wanted to jump in and close the last, you know, the, the last 10 days or whatever it is, not, not two, a two minute meeting where they close. They wanted it now, it was a real deal. They now saw it and they would grab it, put their arms around it, kind of totally neutralize the sales rep. And they would go to do that. And, you know, guess what? That may that may serve you for a week. It doesn't serve you for any period of time longer than that. And that's where great sales leaders like someone like Paul or or Jim Steele from Salesforce um, or Matt Radman from from Workday, you know, great sales leaders that support their people and enable them, um, give them some process when it's helpful and productive. But man, oh man, you got to enable and support your team or you're never going to get to the numbers that these three individuals, Paul included, have gotten through their whole career. Yeah, um, and I think a 
perfect example of that is every prospect and every client is different. So you guys speak about diversity in, in your teams. Well, it may, from my understanding, anyway, go to the level of you want to pair certain types of sales reps with certain types of prospects because you have your greatest chance of synergy and success. So that's something you want to try and keep in mind. Also, to bear in mind that every client is different. I know in my business, uh, through my work uh, with entrepreneurs helping them launch your podcast, every single one of these clients is different. And I can tell you that they run the gamut of styles, of uh, thought processes and everything else. I mean, I may I may jump in the morning. I'm dealing with one client who really, really loves to look under the hood of how the podcast works and all the technical details. And then two hours later, I'm with another client and their primary concern is, well, how do I get a hundred more people to uh, click to listen to this episode? So two different, two different express needs two different motivators and two different things that they respond to in a way that gets that gets you the results you're looking for. Yeah, we talk about uh, discovery a lot in the book. And I always say, you know, deals are not one at the presentation or the demonstration, but they're one in discovery, which means early on in the process, you're discovering, and you said it exactly right, the profile. And it's not just the profile of the company. Right, because most companies operate whether they're centralized, decentralized, how they make decisions. Um, then within that company, the division of the person that you're, you know, selling to. What is the profile of that person? What is that person's, you know, decision makeup and criteria? And then you know, we spend a lot of time analyzing the profiles or personas of these buyers. And you know, it's hard to match the sales reps to the persona because. You know, once a certain sales rep has an account, they typically own the account. But the reality is that sales rep has to be a chameleon and understand that if I'm talking to a very detailed buyer, I better show up with spreadsheets and charts and the detail and not come in and talk about golf or fishing or whatever. And it's kind of the opposite. If you have kind of the buyer who's more emotionally oriented, you don't want to show up with, you know, stacks of spreadsheets. And so I think that's almost selling 101, but you'd be surprised how many people, you know, go in with, I have a hammer and there's the nail and I'm just going to use it in the same way I always use it and not really understand or discover, if you will, the situation or the profile or knowing your customer. Hey, uh, all you have to do is go on Facebook and accept friend requests from random people and you'll find out really quickly that uh, the appointment setting industry um, all <laughs> believes all believes that everybody's looking to get 30 appointments a month. I'm not looking for 30 app appointments a month. I'm looking for 10 closes a month. I honestly couldn't care less if I spoke with 10 people to get those 10 closes or spoke with 100 people to get those 10 closes. I prefer the 10, uh, given my introverted nature, but, uh, but uh, I'm more concerned with getting the number of closes. Now, I could, on the other hand, be the type of buyer who is in a situation, this just occurred to me as I was listening to you, where they work in a culture where they need to fill out spreadsheets and pie charts and Venn diagrams and every other damn thing showing all these discrete <laughs> metrics. And so they're looking to be able to say to whoever controls their funding that, yeah, uh, we did hit our goal of having 50 scheduled appointments because that's what they're looking at. I worked yeah, I worked for a um, a temporary staffing industry for eight months and 16 days. Uh, that's a whole nother story in itself. And the fact that I know exactly how long I was there is probably an indicator. But um, one thing, and, and this was uh, around the year 1999, 2000, when we, are in, when we already had this whole thing where you could go on the internet and go to job boards and just reach out to everybody who's looking for a job, ask them what their skills were, and book in the ones that match the type of clients you're looking to fill temp positions for, bring them in uh, so that they were on file when assignments came up. Uh, we were told we couldn't use a computer, and that was uh, an ineffective way to do things. So... One of my struggles was finding enough prospect, uh, finding enough potential temps on board 
to fill the orders that were available. And the thing is, if you have a prospect in your files uh, who's uh, ready to go out on temp assignments, but you don't have a temp assignment for them in a reasonable period of time, which means if you're not getting a lot of clients in, you're not getting a lot of diversified clients in, what's going to happen is they're either going to find a permanent job or they're going to end up on another long-term temp assignment. You're going to lose them. Once you have that temp in your files ready to go on an assignment for you, you have a very limited window to actually put them on an assignment before they go somewhere else. So I was between a rock and a hard place. Now, what were my superiors primarily concerned with? Uh, the percentages that I spent on outgoing phone calls. So what I did to get them off my back while well, I figured out innovative ways to get access to the computer so I could do what I knew it would work anyway is I would have my I would have my buddies call me and uh, give me different phone numbers what like at their work or at a pay booth or at a cell phone or something like that and I would call back my buddies and have long conversations with them and I got kudos congratulations I was celebrated in front front of the entire company because my outgoing phone time was so high but they never really got to the, but they never bothered to ask, who are these people you're speaking with? Yeah, that's a great segue into the new book, right? I mean, the metrics that do matter and, and a lot of people get tied up into, you know, having these metrics and checking boxes. Uh -huh. And the reality is at the end of the day, you're only paid on results, right? So if that, those metrics do matter, then it makes sense. But if you're just trying to be, you know, putting phone calls on the board to be busy, um, you know, yeah, you may be busy, but you're not going to sell anything. So right. I think it's very, very important for, you know, people who are managing these metrics and, you know, setting up these processes to ensure that they really do deliver the objective, you know, and the objective is not to just have people do busy work. It's to have them do productive work to be able to generate revenue, right. Or opportunities. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, believe me, there's unfortunately a lot of organizations that are run on those kind of metrics, which is another reason why I think we, you know, tried to push this next book that uh, really says, what are the metrics that do matter? And, you know, just because you have data doesn't mean it's the right data. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's like anything else. There's a little bit of art, a little bit of science. There's much more science now, but it just can't be all science and even artificial intelligence you know, comes up with these wrong answers, right? It's, it's just not, um, it's not as simple as, you know, make a lot of phone calls and you'll get a lot of appointments. Yeah. So there's one more thing in the time we have left. And, uh, and this is a really intriguing question to me to the point that I almost don't even understand it. So I've been looking forward to our conversation just so I could ask this question. Uh, you mentioned, uh, actually, I'm just going to ask the question. I'm going to let you guys answer it. Uh, and it's phrased as follows. Why is the end goal in SaaS sales sales if it's not closing? Mark, I know you got a lot of, you know, grief yeah. on this one, so I'm going to give yeah. this one to you. <laughs> yeah, no. So this is this kind of goes off of a couple art articles that I've written, one of which is called um, Never Ever Close. And that is, um, so the concept is in SaaS, it's, you know, there isn't really a, a definitive close. There is a, a paper, to uh, you know, a pen to paper, you know, or not even pen to paper, right? It's all uh, DocuSign now, but there's a, there's that execution. Um, and that's great, but that's not something to, to really celebrate, um, especially when you in the SaaS world always have an activation period that for sure that next seven days, 30 days, 60 days, whatever it is, that's the most important time because so many of these SaaS deals will get executed and then fall apart before the, even the activation has started and the activation being the implementation, getting a client up and running with this. So, and then we all know there's so much more work that has to be done around customer success and keeping clients happy past that that one month period, one year period, and and there. So, I just like to remind, you know, remind the sales reps that I work with that it's it's just not about a close, and even a hard sell kind of model. You know, it's not like you can't ask for a close. You you can, 
But if you think you're going to change the time frame of, of an enterprise buyer and make them sign a deal for you, you know, a month and a half earlier than they want to, you're dreaming. And so many yeah, if you got people sales like leaders that, send them my that. way, we'll hire them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't happen. It doesn't. But you, you still have lots of sales leaders who try to do that and try to get their sales team to make that happen. They know it's not going to happen with, with a high likelihood. But the point is that what they don't think of is how much damage they're doing to the account in, in the meantime. So that was the, the concept behind never, ever close. Oh, I, 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 get, I can certainly I can translate that into terms that I understand. It's called the long game. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, my my offer for working with entrepreneurs to launch your podcast is in. I like to call it the lower end of high ticket. Uh, it's you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty substantial number, but there's a lot of value and a lot of moving parts in it. And I have a whole team behind me that supports it. Uh, and we have the ability to create a really great podcast in a relatively short period of of time. And I also know that uh, you know that decision points is something that i mean candidly one of the tides i fight against are the folks who still believe that if you uh just open up an account on itunes and upload an audio now i have a podcast well first of all it's called apple podcasts it's not itunes itunes is a software <laughs> apple Podcasts is a platform that's something i that's the first point the second point the second point is that's that's where podcasts go uh to die i, I call it podcast purgatory in one of my own writings now to convince somebody that um, that the investment in our Launch Your Podcast Fast program is uh, is what's most in alignment for them, uh, you know, despite the fact that it takes away most of the work they would have to do. They mostly have to answer questions and approve stuff and record some episodes so that it's all ready for the official launch and things things of that nature. And we even provide the training if they think they don't know how to host. But believe me, hosting is not that big of a deal. It's actually a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, sometimes people have to think about that and they say, yeah, I know, I know and I understand that uh, you're actually taking 85 to 90 percent of the work out of my hands. And this isn't even something I have to get my team to fit into their schedule. This is awesome, but it's still an investment for me because now I'm going to have a podcast and I need to figure out how to put that into my organizational structure so that every week we're continuing to produce great episodes. Where are we finding guests? Where are we finding topics? When are we finding time to record? Now, I have the answers to all those questions, but the variable is, when are they ready to hear the answers and embrace them? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's, it, it's exactly how, I mean, it, that fits perfectly into your model. And that's why you're as successful as you are doing what you do. Well, yeah, yeah, certainly. And, I, and, uh, and to me, that's just me taking something from an enterprise level and moving it down to, uh, well, not down, but uh, maybe pivoting it to um, the language that, uh, that, uh, that agencies like digital marketing agencies, um, boutique shops, uh, may be dealing with when they're dealing with um, X number of clients, but it's not necessarily a big number, but it's a higher ticket number. So uh, as I like to say, glaciers move a lot slower than pebbles, or actually, excuse me, glaciers move a lot slower than hail pebbles, but they have a much bigger impact. <laughs> Yeah, so what I want to do now, and uh, I've loved this conversation, but we are at the top of the hour, is I do want to invite everybody to uh, check out your book uh, about 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 selling the cloud, and uh, it can I know it can be found on Amazon and other retailers such as that, and uh, you have a great LinkedIn page uh, about this, about selling the cloud, and I know that the book can also be found on Facebook and Twitter and uh, in the notes for people who come to our website, you'll see some other links as well to get the information. So the book is called Selling the Cloud, a Playbook for Success in Cloud Software and Enterprise Sales. And for those of you who've been listening to this the whole time, and even some of those who are just tuning in now, uh, or those of you who kind of spaced out for 40 minutes that are now leaning in because we're 
word the close, uh, whatever, and need to go back and listen, which is fine. Uh, happens to all of us. Uh, you know, we've we've seen that there are some things you can look forward to in that book. Looking at the different types of buyers, the different types of sales reps. We've looked into uh, a definition of diversity. There are a lot of great things in this book. So whether you are actually selling the cloud or you're involved in artificial intelligence apps that you're looking to launch and sell, uh, even other forms of business, there is a lot to learn in here. And I'm telling you, I'm going to put it on my virtual bookshelf and add it to my cigar time reading. So again, look up the book. It's called Selling the Cloud, a Playbook for Success in Cloud Software and Enterprise Sales by Mark Petruzzi and Paul Melchiori. Just look it up on the internet. They've got a thousand links to it. You'll find it in five seconds. Read the book. And with that, Mark and Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor. And believe me, in education. Thanks, Adam. Thank you so much. Yep. Yep. Been awesome, Adam. Thank you. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.